Well, turn in your Bibles, if you don't have one, um, use one, but you need one. And I constantly reaffirm that because one thing I would not like this place to become, and that is a show. Uh, I have no intention of performing. And so we ask you to get a Bible and follow along with us and read with us so that you can participate. And as you read, and you might notice some things that God would just speak to your heart. Tonight in Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8, we see... The very first Operation Desert Storm. You see, the Amalekites, the sons of Amalek, were from originally the Persian Gulf. And uh, they surrounded the area of the Persian Gulf and moved up into Canaan and surrounded that area as a Bedouin tribe, that is a nomadic group that lived in tents. And they didn't like anybody coming into their territory. And when they saw the children of Israel begin to move into areas that were not their own, uh, their feathers got ruffled a little bit and they staged an attack, preemptive attack, uh, that was countered by the children of Israel, uh, actually by the Lord, as we'll see tonight. The victory was won in prayer. Now we're going to see, as we go through this hopefully, principles of conflict, principles of spiritual warfare. I think that you ought to be interested in that because you do battle, do you not? You are in a conflict. You are in an all-out war. The flesh, the enemy is out to get you. And uh, the conflict uh, begins actually for Israel in this chapter. And I guess we ought to say that the, the first premise of spiritual warfare is the reason that they were attacked. The reason the Amalekites attacked the children of Israel is because they were blessed by God. Attention was drawn to the children of Israel because they were favored. After all, the Red Sea opened up for them. They defeated the Egyptians. They were a threat to any people group. Their reputation moved quickly, preceded them. And uh, because God blessed them and showed his favor so much, the enemy comes to attack. Now that is a principle in spiritual warfare. Because you have become a target for God to lavish his blessing upon you, you have also become a target for the devil to steal that blessing and it gets you. You see, God loves you. We always tell that to people who are prospective believers. Some of us use the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What we don't tell them is the opposite, which is also true. The devil hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. And he uses your old nature... We'll describe a little of that in a moment. That is, the old you, what you are used to doing growing up in this world. And he uses that and pits it against the new you, the one who has been renewed in Christ Jesus, given a new nature. (laughs) It's all out havoc. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They are contrary to each other, Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. But... The great thing is that though we are attacked because we are blessed, God uses the attack. I know that every time we're attacked, this is the devil and we, you know, go away devil. But God will use even the affliction, even the warfare to refine us. It's interesting that fire only refines gold. It does not destroy it. It makes it stronger and it purifies it. When the emperor, Roman emperor Diocletian thought that he had eradicated Christians from the Roman Empire, he set up a huge pillar. And it was set up in his honor with the inscription for having obliterated the name Christian from the empire. He thought that he had completely destroyed Christianity from the face of the earth. And they put up a big shrine because they thought he was that successful. How embarrassed he would be if he saw today how much it had grown. Because what happened is those Christians went in the burial caves of Rome called catacombs and they just got more of them and more of them and more of them and eventually they emerged and they spread like wildfire. Persecution strengthened them and it actually helped them to grow. It says, now Amalek came. Amalek was the son of somebody that we've already read about called Esau. Remember Esau? Esau had a brother named Jacob. Both of them were sons of Isaac. Esau was a man of the flesh. Jacob was the man of the spirit. 
Let me just recap for you their story. Uh, In the book of Genesis, I believe it's chapter 26, 27, right around there. Uh, It says that Jacob and uh, Esau were brothers, and Esau was an outdoorsman. He was the hunter. He loved to go out in the field, get his bow and arrow, and, and just he was a man's kind of a man. He was hairy all over, and, and he was just a man. And uh, Jacob, his brother, was, it would seem, sort of a mama's boy. He was a little more delicate. He liked to sit at home and cook. But he was more interested in spiritual things than his brother Esau. So one day Esau came in from a hunt, and he was really hungry. And he smelt that stew, that gourmet stew that, that Jacob had made inside. And he Oh, he goes, I, he says, I'm dying, I'm famished. Give me some of that great stew that you've cooked. And Jacob, being a little wise, actually conniving would be the better term, said, uh, hey, I'll give you a bowl of stew, but sell me your birthright. I'll trade you a meal for your birthright. In other words, the privilege of being the firstborn from so all the spiritual inheritance would be passed down to. You give me that honor, I'll give you food. You'd think that anybody would say, you're off your rocker. I want to maintain that position in the family as firstborn and the one who's going to receive the blessing and so forth. Instead, Esau said, what is a birthright to me? I'm so hungry, I could care less about it. It's yours, man. Just give me some chili. I'm putting it in New Mexico vernacular for us. So it shows us that Jacob was interested in spiritual things and Esau could care less about them. The grandson of Esau was Amalek. And this is sort of the lineage of the flesh. And and we'll see that the sons of Esau will always pit themselves against the sons of Jacob. Sort of like the spiritual seed against the fleshly seed. And there's always a war with these people. In fact, you will see that the Amalekites continue throughout Israel's history to be their enemies. So we have a type. We have the fleshly nature of the Christian against the spiritual nature. The hindrance of the flesh against the spirit. That our flesh wants to do one thing that's unpleasing to God and our spirit wants to serve God. The attack came very soon after they decided to, by faith, follow God through the wilderness. They crossed the Red Sea. It opened up for them. And they're following God by faith. We Remember, they had to wait for bread to come down from heaven and water to come out of the rock. They're following God by faith. Now, it didn't happen right away, but soon after, they decided to follow God in faith and take that journey. Boom! Right out from behind comes the Amalekites. The gospel ought to be shared in truth with people. I don't think that we should tell everybody before they're saved, hey, you better watch out, the devil's out for you. It's true, but the matter is, truth of the matter is, he's already got you. If you're an unbeliever, you're already in his camp. You've already lost. Once you come to Christ, you have a renewed nature. You have an appetite for spiritual things. Now, you never lose the old nature until you die. And so there's a war that develops. It's better to be in the battle than to be on the wrong side and have no battle. But we're going to see that the Amalekites become the enemies of Israel throughout their generations. Deuteronomy chapter 25, 17 tells us that when this happened, this event we're reading about, the way they did it is the Amalekites came in from the back door. They came in from behind. They didn't approach them with a frontal attack. They came and they got the stragglers, the weak, and the people that were just sort of lagging behind, not staying with the rest. In fact, it says the feeble, the faint, and the weary. And there is a spiritual parallel, is there not? Those who are out of fellowship, those who are stragglers spiritually, are the first who are attacked by the enemy. They make a commitment to Christ, but oh, they lag so far behind. They fellowship with God's people very sporadically. They read the Bible very intermittently. They're the first attacked, and it's a lot easier to get them. When you're in close fellowship with the Lord, you disable the flesh because you're sowing spiritually into your life. And it's a lot easier to stand for the Lord than to fall. Now, uh, we read about, as we have verses 1 through 7, that they're in Rephidim, which, as we said last week, is that the, the upper part of the largest oasis in the Sinai Peninsula, the oasis of Pharaoh. 
a, a green place, a beautiful place. And uh, while they were there, uh, shortly after that, they were attacked. Now, the children of Israel complained to Moses and Aaron consistently. And they're asking Moses to do for them what only God could do for them. Moses was unable to be all that they expected. Uh, we're going to find out, actually, in the next chapter, just how true that is. And so they cry to Moses to provide what only God could provide. Now Amalek came, verse 8, and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So in Exodus, God's people, the spiritual seed, are coming out to take the land. The Amalekites are there to get the stragglers and to attack the children of Israel, uh, the, the people of the flesh. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. You all know what it's like, now I'm drawing the spiritual analogy again, to fight a spiritual battle. Let's just go back. Think in your mind before you gave your heart and your life to follow Jesus Christ. And some of you may still be in that camp tonight. You haven't given your hearts to Jesus Christ. You might be a religious person. You might have thought about God. But now I'm talking to the Christians here. Go back to the time before you gave your life to Jesus Christ. You didn't really have a battle with your flesh. You did whatever it wanted to do. Whatever appetite was in vogue or came to the surface, you just sort of followed it. That's what it says in the book of Ephesians. We wandered according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And actually the word is we meandered like a weather vane. When the wind blew this way, we went that way. When the winds blew that way, whatever was in style, we just followed along with it because we wanted to be popular. There really wasn't a battle. Now that you've become a Christian, you've noticed an interesting dynamic. You notice that there's times where part of you knows you should do this and it's right to do it, and the other part says, I don't want to do that, and you find a struggle within you. In fact, we find that even the godliest people in the Bible had this struggle. Paul the Apostle declared... There's things that I know I ought to do, I don't do them. There's things I know I shouldn't do, and I find myself sometimes doing them. And he finally, in despair, just said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Ever been there? Sure you have. You, ex you sense this fight now, the, the two natures fighting against each other. The alarm clock rings in the morning. The new nature says, get up. Let's spend time with the Lord. The old nature says, don't listen to him. It's time to sleep. After all, you deserve it. You worked hard. You need your rest. The new nature says, oh, it's time for church. Let's go. The old nature says, but have you seen what's on the television tonight? That special show you want, or that game's on. You go, oh, Joe, what's this? Oh. Flesh wars against the spirit. So it was when Moses held up his hand that the Israel prevailed, and when he let it down, Amalek prevailed. Now there are some Jewish commentators who see this very naturally, that Moses raised up his rod as a banner. He put up his hands, held onto the rod, held it up, and it sort of became a banner for the children of Israel. And when they saw this banner raised, sort of the victory sign, that it gave them courage. And when they couldn't see it anymore, they felt like their leader wasn't around and supporting them, and so they fled. I think, actually, what this is, is showing us is that it's more than just a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle that needs to be fought with spiritual implementation. And without going through all the historic documentation, since we don't know exactly what happened, all we knew is that when he put his hands up, they started winning. When he put them down, they started losing. And so we read in the next verse... Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and the other side, and his hands were steady till the going down of the sun. It seems to me that he's saying the battle is won in prayer. Here's the leader interceding. 
He's never had a, 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 they've never had a battle before. This is the first battle scene they've ever entered into. In fact, the reason God didn't take them up the sea coast is because the Philistines live there and he thought the children of Israel, if they engage in battle too soon, they will just flip out. They won't be able to handle it. So he leads them through the wilderness, teaches them a few lessons of faith. Then the warfare comes. Moses lifts up his hands. While his hands are raised, they prevail. When he puts his hands down, the battle is lost. The raising of the hands in the Old Testament was a Jewish form of prayer. When the Jews would pray, and even today, if you go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, you will see many of the men and women with their hands extended. It has been a Jewish form of prayer throughout the Scriptures. In fact, in Psalm 63, verse 4, David said, Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my, lift up my hands in your name. And then Psalm 134, verse 2, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, is, is this going in and out? In the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's going in and out, Jay. Maybe you can fix that. Uh, Paul said, I will therefore, I want therefore, that men will pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In a spiritual battle, we need spiritual weapons. I will that men everywhere lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I have things to say about this. I'm trying to figure out exactly where to start. The raising of hands among Christians is in some circles expected and in other circles frowned upon. Uh, I know people who, when they see others worshiping with their hands raised, they go, God, look at that guy's got a little wild over there. A little, who knows what they'll do next? They might start rolling down the aisles. Don't give them a chandelier, they'll swing on it. And some see it as absolutely radical and fanatical. And the Bible says, Paul said, I wish that people would do that. Raise up holy hands. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, it really doesn't matter. The form of prayer is really unimportant. It's the heart that's important. But often when the heart is bowed in ecstasy before God, often the body follows and there's the raising of the hands. It should always be done thinking of others at the same time, done decently and in order. But there's nothing wrong with it. I just wanted to set your heart at ease. If, if, if you felt an impulse in your heart, but you've been sort of programmed, that's ah, kind of weird, try it. In fact, it, it just seems kind of goofy to sing songs like, I lift my hands up. And just kind of put your hands in your pocket while you're singing that. I mean, if you say that you're doing it, you might as well do it. But again, the form of prayer is not as important as the heart that's put into prayer. The spiritual, uh, the spiritual uh, aspect of it. I told you about the three ministers that were having a little argument about the best position of prayer. And one minister said, the best position of prayer, the holiest position is on your knees. It shows that you're humble. Other minister said, I disagree. The best form of prayer is sitting down with your hands folded, eyes closed, head down. Other minister said, both of you are wrong. The best form of prayer is prostate, flat down before the Lord. That's the most, that's the holiest and best form of prayer. And there was a telephone repairman in the background who said, gentlemen, I've got to disagree with all of you. The most effective prayer I ever prayed is when I was dangling 40 foot off the ground from a telephone pole. <laughs> I prayed like I've never prayed before. So the form doesn't matter, but the heart does. Notice the mention of Joshua in verse 10. Keep him in mind, he is the captain, it seems, in this army, and he becomes the successor of Moses later on. Now, we also see in this a type of Christ. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Right now, in heaven, at the throne of the Father, You've got Jesus praying for you. He is always living to make intercession for you. Unlike Moses, he doesn't get tired of it. His hands don't get weary and fall down. He ever lives to do that. But in verse 12 we read, But Moses' hands became heavy, and so they took a stone, put it under him. He sat on it. I like that. This is very practical. When I was a kid, I used to go to church with my parents, 
and part of the service, you had to kneel on these horrible kneelers. Seems like they were designed by somebody who just wanted you to get bad knees and to inflict pain. I'd kneel on this thing. Oh, let this thing get over with. It took all my attention away. And I find that for me, the most comfortable form of prayer is when I'm sitting down or I'm taking a walk. And I don't feel guilty because my knees aren't aching and I haven't been there for hours and they're bleeding and I've got to crawl up steps to make them bleed. <laughs> I think you ought to be comfortable. You ought to enjoy your time with the Lord. And I find for me when I'm taking a walk and studying His creation that the thoughts and the prayers naturally arise and erupt from my heart. And, uh, the, you know, uh, pray when you're driving. I do constantly. And don't close your eyes when you do that. Keep your eyes open. <laughs> I rarely pray when I'm lying down. Now, sometimes I'll do it, just say, Good night, Lord. But I don't have any serious prayer when I fall down. I don't reserve my time of prayer for the evenings. Because I know that when I get too comfortable, I'm just going to doze off. I'm going to be resting in the Lord till morning. <laughs> so I just do it when I'm awake. But Moses' hands became weary. They sat him on a stone. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down the sun. Oh, how accurate a picture this is of how easy it is to get weary when we pray. It's hard. One of the things I've been asking the Lord about personally this year is that my prayer life would take a more serious, disciplined tone. It's just something that I've seen that I need more than ever before. Is the longer I walk with Him, the necessity to fight the battle in the spiritual realm. It's very easy to get weary in well-doing. Peter and John and James were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, stay here and pray. What did they do? They snoozed. They were sawing logs when Jesus came back. He said, can't you pray with me one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's so easy to get weak in prayer. And Here's another issue of spiritual warfare. If there's one area that the enemy would like to completely knock out, it's your communication center with God. It's your prayer life. If he, can, if he can debilitate you in that area, you are on your way out. You lose contact with Command Central. It's a very strategic thing in fighting a spiritual battle. Picture it this way. If you're walking one night after dinner and you go to your car and your car is parked in the back alley of a restaurant, you go all alone, all of a sudden somebody jumps out to fight you. You might think, okay, no problem, I can take this guy. You start wrestling with him. All of a sudden he pulls out a knife. What is your focus on at this point? That knife. You're thinking in your mind, I've got to get that knife out of his hand. Because that knife is the determining factor of how this battle is going to go. As long as he has that knife, he has an advantage over me. So all of the focus of my attack and warfare will now be to get that knife out of his hand, to disable him from using that knife. The enemy sees you in a battle. And he thinks, okay, the one thing that this Christian has over me is access to the throne of God. I've got to get to that knife. He's got an advantage. I could just knock out his prayer life. And so all of his efforts will often center around getting you in that area. For a fascinating reading, I recommend to you The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis for insight into spiritual warfare. Absolutely a fascinating treatise. When I began to read it, I couldn't put it down of how the enemy seeks to debilitate Christians. Verse 13. Oh, by the way, when you set out to pray, you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to get serious. i got my prayer list, and I'm going to praise and worship. I'm just going to spend time with you. You will be amazed at the amount of disturbances that you will get. Just take that for granted. That's part of, I think, the strategy of the devil. The phone will ring like never before. Your mind will remember things that you couldn't remember for weeks. Like, Where would that come from? What do you do? Write it down put a shit aside and get back to what you're doing. 
In fact, sometimes it seems like the phone won't ring for days and days, and all of a sudden you sit down to break, ring, ring, doorbell. You know, you become Grand Central Station. It's almost a guarantee. If, if you're lonely and you want a phone call, you sit down and you pray, and it just it rings off the hook. Now, I'm not recommending that. Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. Why? Because of unprovoked and inhuman attack, getting the stragglers, the faint and the weary. So God said, Now mark this, and you tell Joshua. There's going to come a time where I want these people wiped out. When did that time come? When a king named Saul was sent out to battle against the Amalekites. Remember that? 1 Samuel 15. Uh, king Saul is commissioned. He takes his army out. He comes back from the battle and he fakes like he's obeyed the Lord. He sees the prophet Samuel standing up there on the hill and he walks up and he says, Hey, how are you doing, blessed of the Lord? I have done all that God has commanded me to do. Samuel said, Really? And why is it that I hear the bleating of the sheep in my ear and the lowing of the oxen? You are to destroy everything. Oh, oh, well, I've saved King Agag alive. He's a prize. And I saved some of the sheep, some of the animals, to sacrifice to the Lord. And you remember the words of the prophet Samuel? As he said, does the Lord have delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices more than obedience? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams. Because you've rejected the word of God, God has rejected you from being king over Israel. And he was rejected at that point. Now, God promises to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Uh, it, it shows you that God is serious about sticking up for his people. And there's another principle in spiritual warfare. You are in the battle, but ultimately God will win it for you. You apply those principles of warfare. You pray. You seek the Lord diligently. Discipline your life to do that. But God will ultimately give you the victory. He will blot out the power of the flesh over you, ultimately. God will protect His people. You know, God said to a Zechariah, Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. And whoever has come against the nation of Israel, it's interesting, has come against God, and God has taken it very personally and very seriously. The ancient Egyptians came against Israel. They once ruled the world a couple different times. They lost that position of being the governess of the world. All of the dynasties of Egypt are buried under the sand. Babylon came against Israel. Babylon was destroyed. Uh, the Grecian Empire came against Israel. And, uh, the, and the, the line goes on. God protects his people. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now one day God will get rid of Amalek. I'm speaking spiritually. When will God get rid of your flesh? When you're with him in heaven. Now, here's the downside of spiritual warfare. You're always going to fight the battle here on earth. You will always have the flesh rise up and battle your spirit as long as you breathe the air on this planet. You say, oh, that's not good news. I, I want to be told that I have a plateau that I can reach where I won't sin anymore. Well, I'm not going to tell you that because it's a lie. We are imperfect. The battle continues. The flesh is strong until the day you're taken to heaven. However, you can have victory. And the more you set down in your life that pattern of obedience, the battle gets a little bit easier each time. Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Uh, just a word about the Amalekites. I think that people have a few questions in their minds. They say, now why would God be so harsh? Why would he say, utterly blot them out? And let, let me paint the story a little bit more in detail. And uh, Saul comes back and Samuel says, you didn't obey God, you're to wipe out everything, everyone, even the animals. It says that the prophet Samuel took a sword and hacked Agag into pieces. You go, ooh. 
In fact, uh, it's such a gruesome uh, text that the NIV decided to sort of ruin the text by simply saying uh, he killed him. But the original text tells you how he killed him. He hacked him in pieces with a sword. A gruesome kind of a death in front of King Saul. Why would God command the complete annihilation of a race? Something we're going to discuss more in detail when we get to it, but let me just tell you what happened because they failed to disobey. You see, King Saul said, Ah, let him live. Give him a chance. Some of the Amalekites were spared. Later on in history, a woman named Esther becomes queen in Persia by the providence of God. And her uncle Mordecai refuses to bow down to a crazy, wicked fellow by the name of Haman. And Haman gets his feathers all ruffled and he goes to the king and he says, I want you to make an edict, king. There's a group of people, the Jewish people, they're very obstinate and they're going to ruin your kingdom. And so just sign this decree that we should annihilate every Jewish person. And history came so close to that edict being carried out. Guess who Haman was? An Amalekite. The Jewish people were almost completely annihilated because back in their history they failed to disobey God and God knew that that would be the result. And the result eventually is that God's people were almost wiped out because of a failure to obey. I know that didn't completely answer the question. We'll get more to that as we get to the text itself in 1 Samuel. But apply that now to your flesh. Don't negotiate with your old nature, all right? There's only one edict for your old nature. Don't let it live. That is, don't let it usurp authority over the new nature. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Don't negotiate with the flesh. The flesh is going to say, okay, okay, listen. I know I have a propensity toward alcohol, but I have a few friends at the bar. Now, I won't drink. I'll just go there and I'll sit down and I'll witness to them. I really want to see him say, don't even go. Close the door to that temptation. Close the door to those weak areas. Some of you are weak in certain areas and you have to take more stringent measures than others. Some of you have a propensity toward certain desires, certain temptations. Some of you have a very strong sexual drive and you have to say no to just letting yourself be in certain places and see certain things in others. Don't negotiate. Be crucified with Christ. Now what's the best way for you to fight? When the flesh raises itself up, when the devil comes in like a flood and you feel you're like you're being drawn and tempted in certain areas. The best way to fight is not to say, come on devil, I'll take you on. No. The best way to fight is to feed your spirit. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul said in Romans 7, yield yourself to God as instrument of righteousness. So when you feel your body being tempted by the flesh, say, okay, Lord, at this time, show me what I can do to serve you. I'm going to use my mouth to spread your gospel. I'm going to use my hands to do good works for the name of Jesus Christ. And start letting your body be an instrument through which God can work. And you'll get so busy working for the Lord that you won't have time to yield that body to temptation. Because you're walking, you're being carried about in the Spirit. There was a little girl who fell out of bed one night. And of course, what do kids do when they fall out of bed? They scream. And mother rushed in, grabbed her little girl to comfort her and said, Why'd you fall out of bed, honey? And the little girl said, I think I stayed too close to the place that I got in. There's a lot of us who do that. We get in the kingdom of God, but we stay so close to the place that we entered. Instead of growing further, we just sort of, I barely made it. I'm in, but barely. I'm saved by God's grace, but you know, there's a lot of fun out there. And we stay too close instead of going on and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now we're taken to Exodus chapter 18, where we get the story of Jethro, not Bodine. <laughs> this is the priest of Midian. And he is a relative of Moses. We met him several chapters back, and now they, they're reunited with uh, 
Jethro the priest of Midian, verse 1, Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, what's interesting about this text is that Moses hasn't even been with his wife for a long time or his children. He's been out doing valiant things for the Lord, and Zipporah, his wife, and the kids have been with Jethro, been at home. Now they're about to be reunited. And uh, as we get into this, there's a lot of lessons in chapter 18 for probably anybody, but especially those who live in such a fast-paced society as we live in today. Many of you live in the fast lane. Some of you are, are uh, in business and you manage uh, big corporations and it's hard for you to budget your time and to let your time sort of take you where it, uh, the duties want to take you rather than you just taking a hold of your schedule. And we learn a lot about prioritizing our relationship with God and our family as well as our business tonight in this chapter. We live in what has been called the Aspirin Age. It is an age of stress. There are so many demands and expectations, and, and let me bring it into the church. There are many demands and expectations of Christians that are unrealistic expectations. And because they are put in front of you, and you feel like you have to live up to them constantly, a lot of you have become depressed, pushed down. You feel like you're about to explode it seemed like Moses was very close to that arena. Now, in the church, there seems to be a philosophy that exhaustion is next to godliness. We extol the hard-working individual. Well, we should, but we shouldn't extol the overworked individual. And some of us delight in being workaholics. And it's wrong. We need to learn to balance our life. Moses is away from his family. He's just completely involved in the work of the Lord. And he's coming really close to a place where he shouldn't be. And Jethro, his father-in-law, picks up on this and gives us some very timely advice. I've heard people say often, I say, you know, I, they say, I'd rather burn out for Jesus. I want to just burn out for Jesus. And they keep saying that. One day they will burn out for Jesus and there'll be no good for Jesus on this earth. Well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Why? Either way, you're out. Why not maintain the right pace and stay in as long as you can? Burning out is not a virtue. I don't think God, I don't believe in burnout. I believe that you ought to do what God called you to do, no less, no more, and don't let anybody bug you about it. Just do what God called you to do, and you won't burn out. There's a book out called The Executive Stress Manual, and it the authors measure stress in what they call life change units. And they say that if you have a, between 200 and 299 of these in one year, you're going to have a nervous breakdown. That's what they say. That's how they gauge it. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I copied a little bit. They say, number one, the death of a spouse would give you 100 life change units from that experience. Divorce would give you 73. Marital separation from a mate, 65. Detention in jail or another institution, 63. Death of a close family member, 63. Major personal injury or illness, 53. Getting married, 50. Being fired at work, 47. Vacation, 42. <laughs> oh, it's hard to be on vacation. Christmas, 43. I found that really intriguing. Christmas gives you 43 life change units. Troubles with the boss, 23. Major change in working hours or working conditions, 20. Change in residence, 20. Changing to a new school, 20. Now imagine Moses. Talk about changing where he's living. He's doing that constantly. His kids are being uprooted. His family is being uprooted. He's going through so much stress. And he's just becoming more and more involved in the work. And Jethro sees uh, that it's not good. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. 
And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my fathers is my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped in the mountain of God. Now Egypt is behind them. The miracles of deliverance are over. And Moses just sort of settles into the nine to five. He just sort of settles into that routine of, of working hard before the people. Except for imagine, imagine, put yourself in his position. The children of Israel are a huge group of transients. Two and a half million, and Moses is their pastor. No thank you. Imagine being the leader for the population five times the size of Metro Albuquerque who complain a lot of the time. Now he gets this unexpected visit from his father-in-law. Ever had one of those? From out of nowhere, the in-laws come. And they can become outlaws if we don't watch it. Fortunately, God has given me a wonderful father-in-law. I never have to worry about that. Do I? Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Now the typical custom of greeting in those days, and probably what Moses and Jethro did, is they saw each other, and before they met, they bowed, touched the forehead to the earth, got up, kissed each other's hand, and then kissed each other on both sides of the cheek. That was the common Semitic greeting, being Bedouins in those days. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that came upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in this very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, uh, with uh, Moses' father-in-law before God. What is interesting is that when this reunion comes about, the first thing Moses does is not spend time with his wife and kids, but spend time with his father-in-law telling him all about his ministry. Now, it sounds good. This is what God has done, but I think it's a danger sign. He's been separated from his family for a long time, but he wants to impress this priest. Hey, let me tell you how God has used me. Instead of saying... Hey, Jethro, I'll see you later. I haven't seen my wife and kids for a while. I'm going to be with them. The first thing he does is share with Jethro, his father-in-law. Ministry is very exciting and very demanding. And if you're involved in it, it can be very dangerous if you have not learned how to balance demands and the excitement of ministry with what is most important, and that is the relationships of those who are the closest to you. If you are thinking about getting into the ministry, and we have many young men at the church who are, set your foot down immediately as you get into the ministry. Say, this is my wife, these are my children, and my first ministry is to them. If I spend all the time pushing them aside and ministering to everybody else who has a broken marriage, I'll have one, and I won't be good to anybody. So I'm going to nurture this relationship with my wife and children. Now, that's going to make a few people angry because they'll demand your time. But this is an emergency. Just set those appointments and those dates with your family and don't break it. Have a priority system. That goes along with your relationship with God. Remember the church at Ephesus? Jesus commended them for working so hard. You can spot false doctrine. You work really hard. I have something against you, though. You've left your first love. That is your relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be so busy about the king's business, you forget the king himself. And we remember that Jesus Christ commended Mary's ministry more than Martha. Remember the time Jesus came over for dinner? Martha was so upset. Jesus is coming for dinner. Clean the house. Cook the meal. 
could be a little bit embarrassing. God's coming over for dinner. What are you going to cook him? Angel food cake? And Martha was concerned that everything was just right. Jesus comes over. Mary just sits there, just hangs out, and just listens to Jesus. And Martha says, Jesus, how can you let her get away with that? I'm the hard worker. I'm out serving you. She's just sitting around. Tell her to get up and help me. Jesus said, no, Martha. You are so distracted with serving. Imagine being distracted from what's most important because you're serving God. Well, what's most important is loving God and sitting in His feet. You will be no good for God until you first learn to sit and listen for orders. Don't feel guilty about being in the dugout. Don't always think, I've got to be out in the field all the time. Take time to sit. To be with the Lord and to worship Him. Jethro responded to this declaration in verse 11 by a declaration about God and worshiping Him. He said, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in this very thing which they have behaved proudly, He was above them. You see, God had demonstrated through the children of Israel and to Pharaoh and everybody else around that he's the only true God and all the other gods can't hold a candle to him. Jethro recognized this. He's a priest of Midian. He'd been worshiping a plethora of foreign gods and it seems like now it's his conversion. He blesses the Lord, sacrifices to God and is converted as he hears the testimony of Moses. Now Moses returns to his nine to five duties. So it was the next day Moses sat to judge the people stood before Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Now listen to this, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Sounds like a noble kind of a thing, right? This is important. I'm important. When they have a difficulty, they come to me. I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and His laws. By the way, the word laws in Hebrew there is Torot, which is plural for Torah. That's where you get the term Torah. It simply means the law of God. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Jethro is bothered by what he sees. He's not all excited. Oh, Moses, you know, you are awesome. You are so important. In fact, I'm really impressed. He goes, I'm not impressed. This isn't good. He saw that Moses turned into a problem shuffler. Moses stood there to listen to people's problems all day long, social problems, economic problems. And you can just hear the kinds of things they're going to bring to Moses. This guy ripped a sheep off from me. Or, she snores at night, wakes up people in the next tent. Do something about it. Jethro saw that Moses was doing this from morning until evening. If you have ever worked with people in any capacity, you can relate to this. Meeting with people all day long taxes a person mentally. And it robs a person from genuine sympathy when he just hears it all day long. Even the pastors on staff, we seek to limit their counseling load to a certain number per day per week. Because otherwise, you know, it, it's like if they listen to one more problem, they will become a bigger problem. And they need to balance it out. We seek to limit that so they can be involved in other things besides just uh, meeting with those who are our problem. Now, at the end of the day, Moses is wiped out. And because there's two and a half million of them and one Moses, Moses is completely wiped out. And the children of Israel are frustrated because they want to see Moses. And they can't see Moses because there's only one of them. So I imagine a lot of the people of Israel say, yeah, I'm really disappointed in Moses. I want to see him. I won't see anybody else but Moses. And they got really bugged. They got frustrated. Jethro said, this is not a good system. He says, listen to my voice. I'll give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. By the way, what a contrast this is to Moses at the burning bush. Remember at the burning bush, God called Moses to lead his people. What did he say? I can't do that. I, 
I can't speak. I'm not the right person. Get somebody else. He had five excuses. But now he thinks he's indispensable. He's watched God use him a little bit. He's gotten a real big head, and he thinks he's the only one that can do it. And what he's doing is robbing other people who should be in the ministry of spiritual leadership because he's fulfilling all the positions in that fellowship. He thinks he's the only one that can do it. In verse 15, he says, The people come to me to inquire of God. He's sort of back to the old uh, kill the Egyptian and bury him in the sand mentality. Remember that? I'm going to do this. I alone have the vision. And it ruined him. Verse 20, You shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way which they must walk and work and must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Place them over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and rulers of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter that they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge so it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. You're going to cover all your bases, but don't try to do it alone. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. His counsel was basically set your priorities. First of all, get alone with God. Verse 19. Listen to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people. Get alone and stand before God. Pray for them. Bear them on your shoulders in prayer before God. Secondly, teach the people God's principles. Verse 20, you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way that they must walk and the work they must do. And then thirdly, share the burden. Get qualified men and delegate Verse 21 and 22, the selection of men. In Numbers 11, we read that Moses selected 70 men called the elders of Israel who became those ones who shared the responsibility with Moses. They were to handle the regular stuff. They were to listen to the complaints of the people, the counseling of the people. And if something was too difficult for that elder, then Moses was there to bounce it off of and make the final choice. Now we see a parallel to this in the New Testament, don't we? In Acts chapter 6, it says the number of the disciples started growing, and it says when the, number of the, when the church got, got bigger, the complaints got bigger as well. And they came to the apostles. They said, okay, apostles, you're in charge. I want you to fix it. And, and you can just hear them, can't you? I won't talk to anybody but Peter. And Peter said, oh, but you've got Joseph here and this guy. No, no, i got to see Peter. And this is what the apostle said. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, those were the priorities of the early church. Peter and John didn't say, okay, okay, we'll patch up all the difficulties. He said, no. We'll select people to do this. And we'll give ourselves to the study of the Word of God and to prayer. That was the priority. It is always a temptation for the church to leave priorities. And I bet it was a temptation for Moses. I'm sure that people said, no, now Moses, he's the gifted one. Oh, but see Aaron, no. Aaron isn't quite as gifted as Moses. Moses is the guy we hear all the time. Got to go talk to Moses. And Moses kind of like that. Yeah, well. I am God's vessel. You know. Instead of letting others that God had legitimately raised up to do it, we will not leave the word of God and serve tables. A uh, poll was taken at Stanford University in California. And uh, they polled church people. And they asked them a basic question. What are the expectations that you have of your pastor at your church. How many hours should he put in? What should he do? And they broke it down for them. They said, optimally, what element of time should your pastor spend in studying the Bible and teaching it? And they gave their answers. 
And uh, how much time should the pastor spend in counseling people personally? And they gave their answers. How much time should he spend in administrating in visitation? They went down the list. They gave their answers. In putting it all together, on an average, they found that the average church person expected from his pastor to put in 135 and a half hours a week. Which, if he did nothing else, said goodbye to his family and decided not to eat or drink, he'd have about four hours a night of sleep. And so it happens when churches grow that leaders must also grow with it. Other elders, other pastors, other counselors, lay counselors, kinship leaders, all very gifted men and women. And it's a pattern that we have sought to follow. I had a pastor call me one time from another state. He was in a quandary. He said, uh, Skip, I'm really bothered by something and I need your, your counsel. I, I'm about... I haven't got any sleep lately. I've just been so busy. I said, well, tell me your schedule. He said, well, church is going good. It was growing, and I was preaching every Sunday, and then um, people wanted counsel from me, so I gave them counsel. Others wanted counsel, and it's gotten so busy that I've had to have my assistant pastor teach two Sundays in a row. I haven't had time to study the Bible. What should I do? I said, A, either stop counseling like you're doing, or B, continue to counsel and let your assistant pastor become the pastor. But you can't fulfill both roles. You can't spend quality time in the Word of God and time running around, counseling everybody, visiting everybody, administrating everybody, eating at everybody's house for dinner. You've got to set priorities. You've got to learn to say yes and to say no according to the gifts God has given you. So either step down and let him be the pastor and you continue counseling, but here's what's going to happen. They're going to listen to him. And then after a while, they're going to not want you to counsel. They're going to want him to counsel. And it's just going to be round and round. You've got to just set those priorities. Raise up other people. Give yourself to the Word of God. I have sought very stringently to follow that pattern. Uh, I have people who say, I dropped by this week to counsel with you, Skip, and you weren't there. I said, you bet I wasn't there. I was off studying the Bible and praying and coming up with message, which I do. I study on an average for Sunday morning about 20 hours for that Sunday morning message. And I try to apply lots of hours to Sunday evening and Thursday evening and so forth. I try to do that. I stick my nose in the Word of God and keep that discipline. It's not easy to do, but it's something I've sought to do because when I was taking courses, my hermeneutics, homiletics professor said, if you preach one hour to a hundred people and you are not prepared, you have wasted a hundred hours of God's time. That never left me. It's always stuck with me. So I have sought to confine my time to the gifts God has given me and to let others be raised up who are as qualified and in this case much more qualified than I am. There are people in this body who are so good at marriage counseling, at financial counseling, at family counseling, at difficulties in so many areas. They're gifted at it. They're good at it. Some of the kinship leaders are so gifted, gifted men and women, that God has raised up. And I don't want to hog all those positions because I'll wear me out and I'll wear you out. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, I want to be used by God. And you know what my philosophy is? Go for it. Go for it. May God raise you up. Uh, Dwight L. Moody said, I would rather get a hundred men to do the work than to do the work of a hundred men. That's what Jethro was trying to get across to him. finally worked. I want to read to you what uh, was in an Ann Landers column. Uh, the person wrote Ann Landers and said, The enclosed was circulated in the church this morning, Ann Landers. It is an eye-opener for people who change churches or quit going because they think the pastor isn't doing enough. Please print it. It's more than just funny, Indiana. She says, Dear Indy, it's a gem. Thanks for sharing. Here it is. The perfect pastor. Results of a computerized survey indicate the perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. <laughs> he condemns sin but never embarrasses anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old, but he's been preaching for 25 years. 
He is wonderfully gentle and handsome, loves to work with teenagers, spends countless hours with senior citizens, makes 15 calls daily on parish families, shut-ins, and hospital patients, and he's always in his office whenever he's needed. If your pastor doesn't measure up, simply send this letter to six other parishes that are tired of their pastors too. Then bundle up your pastor, send him to the church at the top of the list, and one week you'll receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. And Ann Landers printed it. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over people, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, so they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses... But they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Now, I want to sum up. I know it's kind of at that time. So I want to sum up this chapter with principles for anyone, whether you're a businessman, you're a high executive, you're a housewife, and you need to prioritize your time. Number one, we all have blind spots. We all have flaws. And because we do, we need accountability. To have accountability, you've got to be close to people. And I would recommend you go to a kinship, a small fellowship, or some kind of a group of people that know you. Because when you have a blind spot, it helps for people who know you well and who love you incredibly to show you those blind spots. That's where Jethro came in. Moses was doing it right, he thought in his heart. But there was somebody who had the wisdom of years and said, This isn't good management, Mo. You're going to burn out, buddy. Because we have blind spots, we need accountability. To have accountability, we need fellowship. Secondly, you are not immune from natural law no matter how spiritual you are. Though you are a Christian, there are physical laws that apply to you. Case in point, you jump off a building, just because you're a Christian, you're not going to float. You will splat. And that goes for getting tired. You have a physical body... And you need to rest it sometimes. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he worked hard, told his disciples to go out. They came back all excited. Jesus, we did this, we did that. You know what Jesus said to them? Let's go aside for a while. Let's relax. Let's hang out. And they hung out by the Sea of Galilee. He knew how to balance it. He is not a taskmaster. Exhaustion is not next to godliness. Somebody said we have become a people who worship our work Work at our play, and we play at our worship. Don't get caught in that trap. You are not immune from those laws. Get a full night's sleep. Take vacations. In short, keep the Sabbath. Take a day off. Have a hobby. Don't feel guilty. I used to sit out and surf in Huntington Beach, and I used to have the greatest time of fellowship with the Lord. At first, I used to feel guilty. Oh, I should be doing something for the Lord. And I thought, I am. I'm saving the Lord's vessel. I'm letting God's vessel have a little fun so that it can be healthy and stronger. I used to sit out there and go, okay, Lord, I'm going to fellowship with you on the waves. In fact, I pray that you just send me a big set so I can have a lot of fun. <laughs> Thirdly, learn to manage your life by what is important rather than what is urgent. You know the difference between that? There are certain things that press you, and if you always do what is urgent, you'll never do what's important. Case in point, Lazarus died. He was almost dead. Let me go back. Sisters call for Jesus. It is urgent that Jesus come and heal the sick brother. But it wasn't important. It was important that he rise him from the dead. So he let him die. He didn't come. He let it go. And boy, were they angry at Jesus when he showed up late. My brother's dead if you would have been here. I know it was urgent, but it wasn't important. And we need to learn to decipher the Lord's will. Every time there's a need, we have to say, what do you want me to do? Isn't it incredible that after three and a half years, Jesus said, I have finished all that he gave me to do. Wait a minute. What do you mean you finished it? Okay, a few prostitutes have been forgiven, but there's hundreds more that walk the streets. Okay, people have been healed, but there's people that don't even know you exist. Why don't you go get the rest of them? Because he learned to discern the Father's will on a daily basis. Mark tells us getting up a great while before the day, he went to a solitary place and he prayed. And I think we need to do that daily. There are times where I look at my schedule and I'm invited to speak in umpteen different states and places and occasions and meet with this person and that, and I've got to say, what do you want me to do? Help me to say yes and to say no. What is important? 
Keep your priorities. Billy Sunday was given a good list of priorities. Billy Sunday, an evangelist that preceded Billy Graham. When he became a Christian and he decided to join a church, a man came up to him and said, Billy, actually said William, there are three simple rules which you ought to practice. If you do, no one will ever be able to write backslider after your name. So take 15 minutes each day and let God talk to you. Allow 15 minutes to talk to him and then spend 15 minutes talking to others about him. He decided to keep that sort of as a premise for the rest of his life. He'd get up in the morning. He'd talk to God about people. He'd let God speak to him through his word and he'd tell somebody about Jesus that day. And he'd just let the Lord lead him and set those priorities for him. If you are a single person tonight, set your priorities. God first and my relationship with Him. And then my relationship with others. If you're a married person, it's God first, it's your family second, not your business, not your ministry. Not your ministry. It is God, the family, the wife, and the children that God has given you. And then everything else. And let God just throw it into priority. I've told my son, and I hope to keep it that way. I said, Nathan, you have access into my office anytime. And of course, as you know, and he knows, and I know, he knows that. And he comes in and takes advantage of it. I let him come up to me when I'm counseling anyone. I've had people come up, counsel deep things, and Nathan throws his arms around me. And I don't want to say, don't do it. Now, there have been times where I've had to say, Nathan, this isn't appropriate. This is an important time. I need you to back off. For the most part, I just I focus on him. I never want him to grow up and think, yeah, my dad was a pastor. He talked to everybody else at church, but not me. I, I will not have that, even if it happens to offend a few people. God has given Nathan and my wife to me as my ministry, and I'm going to keep that priority. Whether the church grows to multiple thousands or there's ten, doesn't matter. We've got to keep priorities, and you will always be tempted to move away from them. Go home and get a priority list. See if your life is anything like Moses. See if, if there's somebody who knows you that you respect who would say, what you're doing isn't good. You ought to change this. And before the Lord, listen and evaluate. Heavenly Father, as we bring this to a close, we thank you for the practical wisdom from the Word of God You, you have given us all gifts. We are gifted, all of us, uniquely at different things. You've called us to certain things. You haven't called us to everything. We don't want to be a jack of all trades and a master at none. We want to do what you called us to do. Give ourselves to those areas and those arenas, those spheres of influence that you have called us to and, and to say no to those that you haven't. Help us to discern, Lord. Help us not to live according to the expectation of others, but living to the expectation and the calling of God. That we, Lord, might not burn out, but be able to live as long as you will, by your grace, allow us to and be most effective and to enjoy our relationship with you in Jesus name 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 you in